You're listening to Thaisi Women Diaspora, Episode 10. For 30 years, Saki has worked to end domestic violence against South Asian women. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741 or visit them at sakhi.org. Welcome, listeners, to Desi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Mala Kumar. My guest today is Anita Earhart, a career advisor and recruitment professional based in Denmark. Thanks so much for being on the show, Anita. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Great. Um, so it's kind of funny because I, I read your bio and we actually have a couple of things in common, but our lives are nothing alike. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's very funny that it, yeah. it worked out that way. Um, be great if you start out with a bit of your parents' background, because I think that's super interesting for the podcast as well. And then tell us about your childhood. Sure. Okay. So, well, I mean, my background is a bit unique in the fact that my parents, uh, although they're both Indian, uh, my mom grew up in East Africa. Uh, in Kenya, um, actually in a city called Mombasa, right on the coast. And she's actually second generation uh, born in East Africa. My grandmother was born in Somalia. And their family came over uh, during the British Raj time when a lot of Indians from West a- Western part of India came to East Africa to do business and um, import-export businesses uh, in many cases, which was also the case for my great-grandfather. Were they in the textile uh, industry? No, they did a lot of imp- imp- I, I, to be honest, I mean, as far as the the actual details of the business, I'm not sure, but I know what they did a lot of uh, import exports. Um, so uh, yeah, and then my um, my father, he grew up in in Delhi um, in India, and he was uh, the youngest of eleven kids, so a big family. Uh, both my parents actually left their homes quite early in life. My mom uh, went on to boarding school in England when she was 15. Uh, it was quite easy in those days for East Africans to go to school in England uh, because it was all kind of under the British uh, in those days. And and my father also left India at a young age. Um, he left when he was 17 and he went to Europe, uh, eventually ending up in England where he had uh, some relatives and a brother living. And uh, And that's where my parents actually met. Yeah, and uh, and it's quite an interesting story too because they come from very they come from two different religious backgrounds. Uh, my mother is Muslim and my father is Hindu, which was a very controversial and and still is <laughs> uh, in in many cases. Uh, so they're they were both quite uh, rebels for their for their time. Uh, I would say especially my mother who was the young not only I mean she wasn't young she was the only child. Uh, so that was quite a big deal uh, when her and my father got married uh, in her family. Um, but both are incredibly, you know, open-minded um, people. And I think you have to be, of course, in, in such a situation. So I think I feel quite lucky, actually, in that, in that uh, regard. Um, mm-hmm. And so yeah. were you born and raised in London? Well, I was born in London. Um, and I was there when I was quite, I was young. I mean, right around the time when I was in kindergarten was when we sort of made the, the move uh, to the US, uh, or at least stateside. We lived in Canada for a while. We also lived in the West Indies and the Caribbean. Uh, but we were always back and forth uh, uh, to London um, for big chunks of time. So I can remember going to, you know, nursery school and, and kindergarten in 
in the Caribbean, in England, and in Canada, <laughs> kind of yeah. almost, you know, within three or four years of each other, I, I had, uh, you know, experiences in, in all those countries. Mm-hmm. And, and where, where in the Caribbean? Yeah, we lived in uh, Trinidad and Tobago in Port of Spain. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's a, you know, when I, when I tell people sort of my story, it's, it can sound exotic, but at the same time, it's, it's quite a typical Indian story in the sense that, you know, you find a lot of population of, of South Asians um, in, in, in the Caribbean, in Canada, in London, you know, I mean, so there, there's a lot of people who did the similar migrations, I would say. Yeah. It's really, it's interesting though, because one of our previous podcasts was with a woman named Gayathri Sethi, and she grew up in Botswana and Tanzania. And she takes her students, because she's a university professor, to Trinidad and Tobago quite often. And I, I've been I've been there. I spent a couple of weeks there. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting because you're right in that you went to hubs for South Asian populations. But the difference that I've seen, and I've you know spent a decent amount of time in East Africa as well, is that East African Indians are very isolated, whereas Trinidad and Tobago, they're very well integrated. So what was it like? I guess I know you were a child for a lot of these places, but did you sense that? Did you get a sense that, you know, my place in society and how I interact with people is different depending on where you were? Well, uh, to some extent, but yes, as you said, I mean, I was quite young. I think in in, in London, because I have a, a more of a relationship in, with London because I went back there all through my childhood and, and even adulthood, I worked there as well because I also had family there. So even when we weren't living there, I was, I, I did spend large amounts of time there. Um, I would say there, you know, the South Asian population is incredibly integrated and, and very much part of the fabric of society in, in every aspect. Um, I would say, yeah, I, I, I think it, my, my, early memories in, in Trinidad and Tobago were uh, that we were very much part of the South Asian community there, um, uh, much more so. Um, yeah, but um, but I also find that in, in the states uh, stateside where I went to university in the East Coast, uh, there also tends to be these kind of um, hubs of South Asian population. Uh, I mean, you know, in the sense that, you know, even though, um, you know, I, I had a lot of I had friends from all over the world uh, when I was in my teens and early 20s. When I go back now, I can see that a lot of my friends who still live on on the East Coast in the U.S. who are of South Asian background tend to sort of uh, be more in the South Asian community. Uh, And I don't know what that's about, if if that's something to do with when you start a family and some kind of security. uh, but, But it's interesting to see, actually. Yeah, it is. I think, I don't know. I have a lot of theories. I won't go into all of them now. But, um, very interesting. So then you moved to the States and you moved to Virginia, correct? Yes. Were you in Fairfax County in Virginia? We were. We yeah. were. We were in Fairfax <laughs> County, yeah. That's so fine. I went to the governor's school in Richmond, Virginia. And okay. our arch nemesis in our minds was TJ SciTech, which is the first yeah. and biggest governor's school in the state of Virginia and we always thought we were rivals and then you went and talked to them at conferences or whatever and they were like who are you (laughs) (laughs) just such a competitive area it's such a weird a lot of a lot of people outside of Virginia have no idea that that's like one of the most competitive areas in the country if not the world for for high school for university for whatever great um so then what happened after high school well, I mean, after high school, you know, I, I went to university in, in also in Northern Virginia. But uh, after university, I, I worked a bit, but I was always a bit restless. Like I, I was bored, you know, I kind of, um, I, I knew I, I needed to do something else. And um, 
uh, and when I met my husband, actually, at a, at a conference in L.A., uh, we were both there for work. He's from Denmark, and we started dating, and, and he lived in New York, actually. We started uh, dating back and forth, uh, D.C., between D.C. and New York, and I ended up moving to New York after some time, and, and we got married shortly after. I mean, it, was, it all happened quite quickly, I think, but, but um, I think I was just, I was so ready. I was ready for something new as well, and, and I was very excited to move up to New York, and, and, and that too, I mean, of course, talk about international. I mean, that city is just incredible that way, and I just felt, uh, you know, I never really, it wasn't my dream to work, live in Manhattan. I always thought it was dirty and noisy, but I can tell you after half a year of living there, I just didn't want to go anywhere else. I thought it was at the center of the world, you know, so it was really exciting years uh, there. Um, so what was the kind of professional trajectory that led you from, you know, university to New York? And then if you can talk now about where you live currently. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I mean, it's um, when I when I was living in Virginia, I started working in uh, well, I was always very interested in, in television and I, and I wanted to. When I was young, I really kind of fantasized about being a producer, a director. Um, You know, I grew up in the MTV era, you know, and and I was just, I thought, oh, you know, I can, I I could do so much better. I can make those videos so much better. And I just had all these visions about how I thought things should be. And, and, and I really wanted to be a producer, a director. And, and then I, um, I studied journalism and media in, in university and, and ended up actually working, uh, in television after graduation. Uh, doing an internship uh, at uh, at CNN actually when they were just really kind of up and coming, uh, which was which was quite interesting. And then, and actually ending up at the local uh, at, at a local TV uh, station working uh, for for a news for a, a program called America's Most Wanted, which was quite popular um, in the early '90s. And again, but there I was working as a producer and a researcher, and ended up also then working for the local news channel um, as as a, an assistant director. So it was it was. Was a good fit. I liked. Uh, I liked the pace. I liked the energy. I liked telling people what to do. You know, and it was um, it was exciting. But it's uh, it's a special profession that takes a lot of dedication. And and I realized uh, after some time that if I wanted to move on, I would have to go. I would have to move to a smaller affiliate somewhere. Uh, else in in the in the states, and I wasn't really ready to do that. I really liked my. Uh, living in, in an international city, I didn't want to move to a small town. Um, I had some offers, but they were all in small towns. So, so you know, it, it just came to a point where I thought, okay, you know, how much do I really want this? And at the end, it wasn't enough to really make the sacrifices that would have been needed uh, to move forward in, in my career in, in TV. So um, I ended up then uh, working in communication. And when I met my husband and, and moved to New York, I was, uh, I started working in advertising. Um, and it was digital online um and I, again i was working in production i was i was uh, leading a group of project managers in a, in a production team so so it was similar kinds of um skills that i was using but in in very different contexts um and but also again very fast-paced very exciting and but after um after living in new york and living this kind of you know fast-paced exciting life um then we had kids and and then life changed uh, in another way. So um, uh, I stopped working and my husband uh, had an offer to come to Denmark. He's from Denmark. He's from Copenhagen. And he had an offer to come back uh, for a short period of time. Um, And it was good timing for us. I wasn't working. Uh, His mom was quite ill at the time as well. So it was a a good opportunity for, for me to also 
kind of understand uh, Denmark and get to know his family a little bit more. So I was I was really up for for something new again, you know. And um, uh, so we moved to Denmark, and it was just going to be for a short period of time. At first, it was for six months, and then. Uh, the contract got extended another six months. And, and after ha- that happened for, after two and a half years later, we were kind of looking at each other thinking, hmm, maybe we should get our stuff from the U.S. and bring it over here, you know. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but still kind of, you know, with one foot in each, you know, country, we were saying, we, we were not sure how long we would stay in Denmark, but we thought, well, you know, this is, it's working. And, and I really liked it, actually. My, at one point, my husband wanted to go back it. But I actually liked Denmark. Uh, I was a young mom with two small babies, and and it's a great country when you're uh, uh, when you have small children. Um, it's a society that really takes care of new parents and families, and uh, a lot of the daycare and things are subsidized and high quality. and And I just found it really, I found all that amazing. I mean, at, at one point, the the municipality phoned me up and. And said, "Oh, you know, we uh, we have some money here for you. Don't you want it?" And I'm like, "What? You have money for me? What are you talking about?" <laughs> so, I mean, you know, they they give you this kind of you know uh, allowance, this child allowance. But the fact that they just rang, rang me up and said, um, "You know, we have money for you, <laughs> just for being you," you know. And um, anyway, it, and you know, we, when my daughter was born, she was born here in Copenhagen, and and the nurse used to come and. Uh, check up on her progress, how she was growing, and this is all part of the part of the um, system here. And they came; she would come to the house, and she would, you know, check her and make sure everything was fine. And she, you know, when when my daughter in her first year of life, they did that periodically. I just thought it was wonderful, and so again, I felt uh, I felt really good uh, here, and I thought it was calm and simple, and yeah, I yeah. I, I felt taken care of, and that was a really nice experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. It's funny because, um, so I went to the new school for for grad school in New York, and there's a in my program there's a partnership with the Danish University, one of the schools of journalism. So we had a ton of Danish people come into our our school for grad school, and so through them I met like kind of the Scandinavia of New York, which is Brooklyn, you know, Williamsburg. Yeah. <laughs> They've taken yeah. over like the entire. All of North North Williamsburg is like basically oh. Scandinavian. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it's just it's so funny because you meet all these young Scandinavian kids who are like in their early to mid twenties and they're living in warehouses and bunkers and like places that are not even zoned for like like habitation because it's interesting and cool and they want to have that in, like amazing experience and then they meet somebody and they decide to have a kid and everybody goes back to Scandinavia everybody and so. I've heard that it's a kind of a boring place to grow up, but it's also really, really stable. <laughs> it is. And, you know, I, I used to joke, too, in the early days. I said, this is a great place when you're, you know, when you have small kids and when you're really old. <laughs> and then yeah. in between, you need some adventure because, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah, it is a very like-minded society. It's very, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, it's very still very ethnocentric. You know, I mean, it's, it is becoming more diverse. I mean, in the years I've been here, 15 years now, which is incredible when I say it out loud, it just goes so fast. But, but you know, in these years, I've really seen the country become much more diverse and as, as Europe also, you know, as the EU accepted more and more, you know, member states and, and, you know, Eastern European, a lot of it's Eastern Europeans started coming as well. And refugees, so, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's just, it has, it is becoming more diverse. And of course that brings other social challenges, um, 
but it, it, you know, no place is perfect. But you know, I've I've lived in so many places, and I just think you know you have to just take in the good things and leave the bad, and 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 try and you know uh, focus on the positive. You know, which is there. Yeah. There's been lots of positives. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, your husband, you said, is Danish, and then your kids, I'm sure, identify as Danish. So what is it like being a family of four and being the only non-native Dane, so to speak? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and, and my kids do identify as Danish, but they also feel very American. We we go back to the States a lot to visit my family, and, and they do feel very American. Um, and we have taken them to India as well, uh, where I have a lot of family still. And although they really appreciate that part of their heritage, they're not very, um, not not connected to it uh, or really understand it as much. It's not as much a part of them, but at the same time, they appreciate it, uh, you know. And uh, I remember, I remember my son when he was really young. I think he was about three years old, and he, we were here in Denmark. And I remember saying to him, you know, his name is Sebastian, and I said, you know, Sebastian, you're part Indian. And he kind of looked at me and he said, oh, but mom, I only want to be Sebastian. And I just thought that was, <laughs> I'll never forget that moment because it just, to me, showed that, look, you know, it's its not about what you identify with. You know, it's, its you know, kids are so, in that way, they can teach us so much, you know. He just wanted to be himself and and they're kids of, of mixed heritage so, so it's really interesting to see how they take that in and how they identify themselves in the world and, and put themselves forward in the world. And I think they're very, in that way, they're not caught up in, in sort of what other people think they should be. They're just, they're just themselves, you know. And, and I think the fact that they appreciate where they come from and their cultural heritage, that's, that's fantastic, you know. So. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, being well adjusted is always yeah. a nice thing. Um, so one of the things you mentioned a couple times here and then in you know the background that you gave me is that in Denmark there's not really a great understanding of what South Asian means. Um, so mm-hmm. can you kind of contrast, especially like London and New York, where it can get down to really like the village and the specific dialect of the language when you talk about South Asians versus Denmark, which is kind of glomming everything into a monolith. So what is it like with that? Yeah, well, I think in Denmark, you know, it's much more uh, every you know anybody who is has brown skin is just lumped into kind of one category, <laughs> you know, and uh, whether you're Middle Eastern, whether you're South Asian, and people make assumptions just based on on the co- you know the color of your skin. If you're, it's brown, then you must be like this kind of you know, and so I think and so I don't think the and the nuances of, for instance, cuisine or language, people don't really. Um, they're not really tuned into that as much, you know, when they think of Indian food, they think of, oh, curry, you know, <laughs> it's very basic kind of, they don't, they, they're not as exposed to, uh, you know, the different kinds of Indian, uh, you know, the culture as, as diversity as it is in India. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, has that been frustrating? Sometimes, yes. And, you know, sometimes I kind of have to, stop myself from judging people and saying, okay, look, they're not ignorant. They just don't know. <laughs> you know, it's not that they're trying to be rude. It's not that, you know, they just are not aware. They just haven't been exposed. Um, so it is really about uh, awareness. And I think Denmark is also a very, um, it's a very open society. It's, and I think people are very blunt, you know, they really say things 
you you know what you get and it can be really wonderful and it can be also very shocking <laughs> what people will say to you you know and it's not because they're being rude they're just telling you like they're seeing it you know but you get used to it and and to some extent you learn to appreciate the honesty and again you just for me i've i've always just taken in what i think is what what i can and what i felt was too much i just kind of say okay well that's just not me you know but my boundaries have changed i can tell you in a sense in change in change in ways i never thought they would bringing up teenagers now in scandinavia is uh is another kind of challenge i mean it's cha- it's challenging in in the us and and in england and things but it's also a different kind of challenge here where um in some ways they grow up faster because they are allowed to do a lot more at an earlier age they have a lot more freedom as well um but uh but that's also yeah that can be tough <laughs> for someone like me who although i grew up in a very liberal household i would say it when you talk about uh, south asian standards i still felt i still am yeah my comfort zone is still being challenged quite a bit <laughs> yeah no yeah. it's uh, yeah it's an interesting point i mean again i i don't have kids so i don't want to even pretend i understand what that's like but i think just having observed so many of my scandinavian friends coming over like right after university essentially so early 20s yeah um i saw that they had a sense of like the world is just and fair and people are treated well and that's kind of the yeah. baseline and then you go to new york and it's like no, if you do what you're doing in Denmark, you will get robbed. You will get mugged. Something bad is going to happen because you're just yeah. you're being stupid, honestly, like for the situation where you're in. Yeah. And so I think that the, that kind of isolation can be tough for, for a lot of my Scandinavian friends, at least back then. It took like I really it's not even I know it's anecdotal, but I think I had three or four Danish friends who were robbed in the first couple of years they were in New York. And it's just because they were not aware of what they could and could not do. Yeah. No, it's true. It, it's very interesting that you say you you have that observation too, because it is a very trusting society in in in, a, in Scandinavia, not just Denmark. I would say in, in in Scandinavia, you know, people trust that others are going to do the right thing. That's the first instinct is to trust that people will do the right thing, whether you're, you know, um, in business or whether you're just driving in a, in your car. You always, you know, trust that the other guy is going to do what's right. And whereas in the U.S., you know, I can say because I went to school there that you grow up as in a very defensive mode of, um, you know, how you see the world, even in driving, you it's Mm -hmm. defensive driving, you know, Mm -hmm. like everything is about, oh, this is what you do when the other guy screws up because, you know, so, you know, it's, it's such a different way to approach the world. And, um, and I would get frustrated with my husband when we were living in, in the U.S. together in New York. I would be like, oh, you're so trusting. You're always, you know, I mean, he was, he, uh, he always assumed the best of people. And I would, I thought he was so naive in some, in some ways. And now after living in Denmark, I see where I get it. You know, I see where that comes from. Um, and it's just a way of, it's just a w- way they're socialized here. It's, it's a, so much about, uh, it's not about the individual. It's about the community. They're socialized from the beginning, from the, when they're in nursery school. It's all. It's not about who you are as an individual. It's about how you contribute to the society and the community. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it is true what you said that it is up until very, maybe very recently very ethnocentric. <laughs> so I do yes. wonder what's yeah. going to happen. Like I, I tell this to so many people because you know now we're 
sadly coming into the 2020 election so this crazy chaotic mess is going to start all over again even though it never ended yeah um and so now bernie's getting up there again and saying you know we should be more like sweden the same thing over and over again it's like well sweden is a country of nine million people and 80 87 percent are are white ethnic swedes and then 13 percent are coming in from other countries but only in the last generation so what happens when two three generations down people realize that it's part of like you said fabric of our society does that mean that cohesiveness stays or does that mean that they're also going to question what America and the UK and so many other countries now have to grapple with that they are not a monolith and they cannot depend solely on one race to carry them forward. Saki exists to end domestic and sexual violence against South Asian women. Although domestic violence has long been a silent subject in the community, two in five South Asian immigrant women in the U.S. are survivors. In its 30 years, Saki has united survivors, communities, and institutions to create powerful and sustainable change. Saki offers a range of services for the community. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741, and to learn more, visit their website at sakhi.org, or follow them on Twitter at sakhinyc. Um, so I'm going to switch gears a bit, because I know you've worked at UNICEF for quite a while, as have I, so can you tell me what is it like working for UNICEF in Copenhagen, and what have you done in the UN? Yeah, so in the UN, I worked, uh, when I started in the UN system here, I worked in uh, as in communications and, and, and moved on then into HR and recruitment. And um, it's been great. I've really, my UN experience here was, was a wonderful uh, kind of anchor for me because it was such a multicultural environment. And as I mentioned, a very ethnocentric, uh, you know, country. And, and so I, in, you know, growing up in, you know, places like London and Toronto and DC and New York and living in New York. And, you know, I was always used to having, you know, a very global uh, atmosphere, multicultural atmosphere and, and lots of different kinds of people around me. So I was really, I felt very fortunate to find that um, uh, here in Denmark. So, so that was a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. And, but in between that, I also worked for a Danish company uh, for a while. And um, that was also a great experience. The, the company itself, it was a Danish company with international uh, offices. So the corporate language was English, although, you know, at lunchtime and, and in the hallways, you know, people spoke Danish. So, uh, but emails and the corporate language was English, but it was also, again, like I said, very multicultural. However, the the system of working was extremely different. So in the UN system, it's very hierarchical. Yeah. Um, which is like, yeah, which is yeah. like most, a lot of, a lot of companies also in the U S but the Danish system is much more flat. Um, you are, you know, much more able to say your piece at a meeting. doesn't matter what your level is. You can be the, as an assistant and talking to the managing director and you can feel free to speak and say your mind. And, and in fact, you're encouraged to, uh, so, so that was also a really interesting experience because I really enjoyed that. Actually, I thought that was very healthy. So when I, when I was, uh, in the UN system, it was sorely disappointed. Well, it was just a marked difference. And I, yeah. it was almost for me because I also, you know, worked in those kind of companies, which with a lot of hierarchy in the States, it was kind of like, Oh yeah. Okay. I remember this, you know, and then you just kind of get on with it. But 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 in the but in the I would say in the UNICEF office or in the you know UN offices here in, in Copenhagen, the, there's a lot of local staff that are hired that are Danes, and they bring their culture with them, and so they kind of also um, you know push the the corporate culture 
uh, in a healthier way, I would say, and, 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 and try to, you know, put forth that idea of like, hey, I'm going to say what I, what I want to say. And just because you're another level, higher level than me doesn't mean you're necessarily smarter than I am, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so, so I think that's a very healthy thing as well. Yeah. For the UN yeah, here. Th- yeah. 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 It's unfortunately doesn't tend to work like that in New York, but. No, but that's again where this kind of boundary of, you know, people yeah. who are not used to being spoken to very directly as because Danes are very direct, mm-hmm. they get, they get uh, kind of uh, surprised and, uh, sometimes offended, sometimes just taken aback. Uh, but I've seen a lot of international staff who come here kind of say, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> you yeah. know? I told them what to do and they said, no, what's, what's happening here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no respect. <laughs> um, all right. So this is one question I love to ask all of our podcast participants. So looking back on your life and all the places that you grew up, what is one piece of advice that you would like Danes to understand about other places that you've lived? what I would want Danes to understand about other places that I've lived. Yeah. So like if you, what are some of the great things about America or Trinidad or London? Like what are some of those things that you want, would want Danes to understand about other places in the world that you've grown up? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, I think I would want Danes to sort of really, um, I, I, I would hope that they would be open to, Ah, well, it's yeah. I, I I think that because the thing is, I'm I'm saying this, but I know Danes who do travel abroad are in in a lot of cases quite open, uh, and they do do a lot of traveling. A lot of kids here take a gap year before they you know head off to to university and things. But I think that the thing that's probably I would say great to under for them to understand is that other cultures are not so different from theirs, you know, in the sense that we all have the same values and wants in life to, to succeed, to take care of our families, to, to grow, to learn. Uh, and I think that Danes are living in a, a society that's very privileged, uh, that has a strong social uh, net that holds them if they fail. And I would like them to understand that all that how privileged they are because most societies don't have that. So before sort of um, kind of being too much on a high horse to say, oh, well, but, you know, why don't you do it the way we do it to understand that other societies might have other complexities that they're not aware of that they should try and tune into before making judgments until you really start to to step in and 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 look a little bit under the surface as to what these cultures and societies, what are their histories, what are the complexities, what are the, what are the different uh, elements that are working together or, uh, or trying to find their way, what, what's happening, and, and, and try to understand that a bit more. And a bit more from, from the inside, not just kind of a bird's eye view. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. a really great piece of advice. <laughs> um, so then flipping that, what what would you like America, England, all of the places you grew up to understand about your life in Scandinavia? Well, I think um, I feel that Denmark has given me, I, I feel like my stress level in Denmark is very low. <laughs> and I think that's because, again, this feeling of the trust in the society of each other. Um, in America... 
I feel that it's people have become much more paranoid, even from when I lived there. I mean, I left only in the late 90s, and I feel like the society has become much more, even from since then, much more tense, much more paranoid, much more scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and I notice it because I've now been away, you know, and when I go back, I can I can feel that. So I, I think what I would hope for, for, you know, the U.S. too would be that that trust comes back a little more. You know, when I grew up in, you know, Canada and the U.S., I was... I had a lot of freedom. I had the same freedom that my kids enjoy here in Denmark, uh, as far as being able to just after school run around, go out with my friends. You know, my parents didn't worry, um, and and we didn't have mobile phones in those days. You know, but but people worry too so much now um, in 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 the U.S. and uh, so much so that it's difficult for for mo- mothers to let their kids walk home from the bus stop. They want to drive them home because it's they're afraid, you know. And so I think the restrictions on kids and the lack of trust in the society is going to backfire in ways where you know children might rebel or yeah, they just. Um, I think it's I think it's tough. I think it's tough for kids to to not have that freedom that we enjoyed when we grew up in the U.S. So you've been living in Denmark now for about 15 years. Um, what are you up to now? What is the latest endeavor? Yeah. So yeah, after 15 years, I mean, I've tried uh, some different things. I've worked, you know, as I mentioned, in the UN system. I worked for a private Danish company as well. Uh, and, you know, after uh, all these years, I've kind of taken what I felt were the most interesting and fun parts of, of the work I've done in, uh, in the past. And, and I decided uh, this year to start my own company. Um, it's called uh, Career Explorations. And basically what it is, it's a, a career coaching um, service that I provide uh, to young people. Uh, and it's people between the ages of 20 and 35. Um, and it's a, uh, it's really been one of the most fulfilling things I've, I've done. And that's, that's one of the great things about Denmark is it is so easy to actually be an entrepreneur here and, and start your own company. It's very, it's a very simple process uh, to register yourself as a, as a company and, um, and, and to get going. And there's a lot of different funding sources out there as well, if you're creative and, and, persistent. So, so, um, so yeah, I decided, you know, it's been a dream of mine, you know, all my life actually to do something on my own. I've, I've mostly worked in companies. So this has been really exciting and a, and a great uh, learning process. Um, and as I said, very fulfilling because I work with young people and I mean, I work a lot with the international community, but I also work with a lot of young Danes. Uh, and there are students who are sort of looking for some inspiration and some direction. Uh, very often they're kind of feeling very insecure and, and unsure about the choices they're making in their life or in, whether it's in their studies or or in their new jobs as recent graduates. Um, so, so I try to help them through that that process of kind of discovering, you know, what it is they they really want to do and, and focus on. It's, and it's really great fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So I guess what kind of advice having such an international life do you bring to the youth of Denmark? Like, what do you, what do you think that they will learn from everything you've been through? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, and 
international perspective and another perspective is always healthy uh, to be able to share with people. Denmark, is, as I had mentioned, is, you know, it's still a very ethnocentric society. Um, you know, it's a small uh, population. So people are used to doing things in a certain way and thinking in a certain way. And, and, and kids here actually, you know, young people surprisingly actually have to make choices quite early about their studies. Um, you know, it's a highly subsidized uh, sort of um, structure they have for, for education here, which is incredibly fortunate. So it's, there's a lot of opportunity uh, to study, but, but kids make a deci decisions quite early about what kinds of studies they're going to do right from the time they start, in fact, um, going into high school. So the high, the, the high school process, when you finish sort of the primary school years, you actually have to uh, apply to a high school and you choose a high school that you would like to attend. It's not necessarily just the one that's in your vicinity. Uh, and, and many of the high schools have different areas of speciality. Some are more technical, some are more creative. There's a lot of choices that you can make uh, within the system for depending on what you feel your strengths are. And of course, for some people who really know what they want, it, it can be a very easy and straightforward choice. But for most of us, I would say, uh, I know, especially for me when I was young, I didn't know what I want to do. And, and many young people are still trying to find themselves. And so it's a lot of, um, it's it's a big decision and, and a lot of kids really struggle with it. Um, so what do you think, like, if you had to give one piece of advice to young entrepreneurs in Denmark, given your Indian identity, your American identity, British, you know, the compilation of your identity, what are some pieces of advice you'd want those young entrepreneurs to take? I think one thing that's very helpful as an entrepreneur is to have a mentor. Find somebody who has been an entrepreneur, who has their own business, uh, you know, currently, uh, and and find find someone who you can ask questions. You know, don't feel you, know, you don't feel sort of um, shy to ask all the dumb questions <laughs> to you know, and even all the small little questions because it is some it is a it's something new to navigate. I mean, when you have to start dealing with your own accounting and the tax system, and you know. There's so many details uh, that you can't afford to get wrong, um, and and um, and I think if you have someone that can help guide you, that you really trust, uh, and who you can learn from, and learn from their mistakes, and learn from their successes, it's a huge advantage uh, to have. And and also, I think just network your heart out. I mean, find all the events that are relevant, uh, network, and meet new people, and don't be afraid to, you know, to walk up to somebody and introduce yourself. Uh, you know, never go to a networking event without, you know, going home with at least two or three phone numbers or contacts because, um, you know, you want to take advantage of every every opportunity you have to get in front of people and talk about your what you're doing and, and uh, hear about what they're doing uh, and see where there might be synergies and opportunities to work with each other together or even um, to get some clients. So it's it's really interesting and kind of fascinating to me that you're working on like youth entrepreneurship in a country that would I guess like by all intents and purposes be classified as socialist or at least like a so more socialist ec economic system. Yeah. Cuz I think in America and as international as I am, I think this has seeped into my brain and it's probably not even true. Um there's this idea that if you have a more socialist based society that necessarily quat like squashes any opportunity for entrepreneurship. So for Americans who are skeptical about the idea of having entrepreneurship in a more so like economically equal society, yeah. what would you say to them? Like, what's oh, your argument against? It's absolutely opposite, I would say. And and I'll I'll tell you something that really highlights it. For instance, when I stopped uh, my last you know corporate job and I decided that I'm going to try something on my own, 
my sister who lives in Washington, D.C., the first thing she asked me, she said, oh, Anita, but, but what about your insurance? You know, what about your health insurance? And, and then suddenly she stopped herself. She says, oh, yeah, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> and I said, that's right. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, you know, you have, um, you, you know, you don't have to worry that, oh, my gosh, you know, if I don't have health coverage and, you know, you don't, you, and, you know, you hear as well, like, okay, if, if your business fails, it's not that you're not going to be able to send your kids to college because college is free. You know, I mean, it's all the system is is built in in a way that it it's you have this safety net, you know, and, and because mm-hmm. you have this safety net where you don't and you, I mean, of course, you pay for it. We pay very high taxes, some of the highest in the world. But in one way, you know, you don't you, you don't. Uh, complain about it because you see it everywhere around you coming back to you, you know, in, in, in so many wonderful ways, for instance, you know, college, <laughs> um, or private school subsidies, um, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, as I mentioned, there's also so many uh, funds that you can apply to to get grants and to get loan or not loans, but to get, uh, you know, funding for your company, depending on what it is you might be doing. Uh, there's innovation funds and, and a lot of a lot of things out there. So, um, so you know, there's there's a if you're creative and you're you know you really get out there and look. There's there's so many ways that the that the the country can support you here. And one of the main reasons why why I just kind of decided to take the plunge because I have been normally a person to play it a bit safe and you know I have a family to think about and and um, but uh, but again you know if all else fails it's not that there no one's going to go to to college or or suffer um, or you know we're not going to be able to go to the doctor or you know things like that. So um, yeah, so mm-hmm. that is uh, it's a really great thing. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's funny, because in some of our previous episodes, we've had um, other people who have worked as a scientist and are looking at funds in Germany, because they have an entire program that's set up to attract foreign scientists and basically get all of the innovation out of them. So I think, you know, America's kind of co-opted this idea that they are the hub of innovation. And for a while, that was true. But if you actually look at the breakdown of multinational corporations versus the population, then Europe actually has a higher ratio. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, they're they're definitely making it friendlier, uh, also for entrepreneurs. Um, Yeah. So what is entrepreneurship like in Denmark? Because I think entrepreneurship in America is still very much like a a Mark Cuban kind of thing where you starve yourself for five years and then you become a billionaire. That's the the American dream. That's the American dream. Do you think it's the same in Denmark or is it more like a leveled approach? Like if I start my own business, I'll be happy, I'll make a good income and I'll do something I really want. Is it more of that or is it like this kind of pipe dream, I'm going to be a billionaire and rule the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think of course people still dream big. Um, people want, you know, entrepreneurs that I've met, they, they really want to be successful. Of course, a lot of people become entrepreneurs because they're really passionate about something. And and so, of course, when you have, you know, that much concentrated passion in something, you really want to be the best and you want to, you know, show the world how, how good whatever it is you have, whether it's a service or product is, you know, so you want to really succeed. Um, and most of them do, but there is, a, of course, this um, mentality that comes with the culture of of balance and good enough is good enough. Like in a sense, and what I mean by that is, it doesn't. Ha- you don't have to, you know, have the biggest house or the most the fanciest car. And it's not about you know keeping up with the Joneses. That kind of you know, uh, it's much more about you know how do I balance the life that I want to live? And you know, am I do I have enough balance between what I like to do? on, you know, personally, what I like to do in my job, there is this, a lot of emphasis on this work-life balance and the quality of life is really measured, I would say, much more along those lines than it is around material 
kind of possessions. And, and in fact, in Denmark, um, and I, this has been since I moved here 15 years ago, it still remains the mentality. They have this Yenda law. I don't know if you've heard about that in mm-hmm. kind of Scandinavian society, but it's in Denmark, it's, it's kind of like, you know, don't think you're better than anybody else. And that mentality is, you know, really really trickles down into all aspects of life. You know, people keep a low profile and they don't brag a lot. And, you know, if they're, if they have a lot of success, they the first thing they do is not go out and buy a flashy car, you know, because this flashy or this show off kind of thing is it's, that's, it's really looked down upon. In fact, yeah. I know, I, I know sense many, of immaturity. Well, I think, you know, I know many people here too, who have, you know, who are very successful, but they hesitate to go out and buy that really nice car because they just don't want to bring attention to themselves. And and you'll see here in Denmark too, some of the really large villas, large homes, they have huge, you know, um, like uh, hedges and things like very tall trees. They, they try to hide, you know. <laughs> so um, so again, it's it's kind of like, don't just don't be showy and don't mm-hmm. think you are better than anybody else. And, and in fact, if you brag too much, people will put you in your place, <laughs> you know. It's, yeah. it's because it's not what really, drives them you can walk down the street and you know there can be a movie star like you know walking next to you or walking coming the opposite way and and it's not that they're going to get mobbed or something it's people really are not you know they might they might look and say oh look who that is but they're not going to kind of you know mob around that person or they're just they leave them alone like everybody respects the space but and they're not overly impressed by each other uh, which is really like interesting. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> for, for a very different motivation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, it, in one way, it's kind of refreshing because yeah, you're kind it of, is. like, well, you know, I mean, um, yeah. And, and I think keeping that humility is something that's, um, yeah, that's very much part of the culture. And again, it comes down to this feeling of like, what's best for the community rather than the individual. Yeah, absolutely. And that cultural difference is especially clear as the world is changing so rapidly now. Anita, thanks again for being on the show. And thanks to our listeners. Join us next time on Desi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. This episode of Desi Women Diaspora was written, produced, and recorded by Mala Kumar, with editing by Kiran Kumar. Our music was written and recorded by Joseph McDade. Find him on Patreon at patreon.com slash Joseph McDade. And of course, special thanks to our interview guest, Anita Earhart. <laughs>